In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. We have a jam-packed episode for you today. As we teased last week when we were talking about SCOTUS decisions, we are going to start off by talking about uh, the Supreme Court decision about uh, Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Um, And then we're going to do a classic Perspectrum deep dive into nuclear energy and whether it actually should or shouldn't have a role in the energy uh, production of the future and like the climate transition. Um, So hopefully that'll be a super interesting episode. That's a topic that I've been wanting to do for a while. And uh, Vivek Ramaswamy really brought it to our attention last week with his uh, with his policy page. So thought we'd dive into it. Yeah, yeah. I am really excited about that discussion. I excited is not the right term for what I am for Hmm. the student loan discussion. It's definitely (laughs) something I want to talk about. But, um, you know, you're excited like Be an angry electron, for... all charged up as excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, I've got I have a nuclear very negative attitude zone. right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, why is that? Well, because the Supreme Court <laughs> fucked us over. They again sure did. Yeah. Okay, so let's dive right in. As a reminder, uh, last year the Biden administration announced a plan which would be. Uh, you know, administered through the Department of Education to forgive a significant amount of student loan debt um, to most borrowers. So this would forgive up to $10,000 of student loan debt for non-Pell grant recipients and up to $20,000 of student loan debt for Pell grant recipients, subject to a pretty high income threshold um, that would leave it open to the vast majority of student debt holders in the U.S. And this would have forgiven approximately $400 billion dollars in student loans um, and would have benefited approximately 43 million Americans. And the United States Supreme Court was like, that's too much good for one place, so we're going to go ahead and and destroy that. So the legal basis, or at least the claimed legal basis from the Biden administration for being able to forgive all of that debt was under the 2003 HEROES Act, which basically gave, you know, the Department of Education the ability to adjust or, um, you know, change the terms of student loans, um, among many other things. But it was essentially intended to be able to allow the uh, Department of Education to change their policies in the face of an emergency. And this was in response yeah. to, you know, uh, you know, 9-11 and, and the war in Afghanistan. Yeah. It specifically gives the education secretary the ability to, quote, waive or modify uh, student loan balances. Mm -hmm. Waive or modify. Which, boy, that does sound like exactly what this is. (laughs) Yeah. Now, what Roberts basically argued, in his opinion, Mm -hmm. he wrote the majority opinion, was that this was basically a case of the Biden administration overstepping the legislature 
and doing something without congressional authorization. Mm -hmm. Because according to the Constitution, Congress does have the power of the purse. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about something as significant as student loan forgiveness, we're talking about something that should require a piece of legislation in order to authorize. So here's why that's bullshit. (laughs) The HEROES Act, and this is true, is a fucking piece of legislation. <laughs> and this is true. That's, t- <laughs> That's fucking mind blown right now. I cannot believe that. <laughs> so you're saying that he bypassed Congress. Like yeah. Congress has the authorization to forgive student loans and he bypassed Congress. But the problem is, first off, he wouldn't even, I don't even think he had to go through the HEROES Act. He could have gone through the Higher Education Act, Mm -hmm. which gives the federal government the authorization to give student loans in the first place, which means that the executive branch administers the student loans, Mm -hmm. which means that the money that's owed is owed to the executive branch, which means that you can forgive it. Yeah. Because if I were to... So say, say Michael were to come up to me and ask me for 50 bucks, which is unlikely because he makes like 10 times more money than me. Not 10. <laughs> That's too many more money. <laughs> Not 10. Not 10. But a lot more money than me. Um, he were to say, hey, Nathan, can I have 50 bucks? And I were to, were to loan him 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. And then say a year later, Michael were to come up to me and say, oh, hey, I owe you 50 bucks. And he were to take out 50 bucks and hand it to me. I would be allowed to say, you know what? You keep it. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm, I'm forgiving that. I'm forgiving that loan. I'm forgiving that uh, uh, yeah. the money that you borrowed. You, you don't owe me anything. I'm mm-hmm. allowed to do that. So is the federal government. But Biden didn't even go through the, the Higher Education Act, which he could have. Instead, mm-hmm. he went through the HEROES Act, which was a little bit more specific in yeah. that he tied it to the pandemic. Yes, now, it was specifically the Hero that HEROES Act authorized these kind of additional powers in the face of an emergency. So it is more yeah. constrictive. And you can't argue, nobody can argue, that the the pandemic did not count as an emergency yeah, that seriously. warranted some level of student loan forgiveness because it's something that Trump did several times. Yeah, it's and a, nobody tried to challenge it. Yeah, it's a student loan. It's a it's a it was clearly a national emergency that had some of the largest emergency spending ever. And yeah. to your point, under the Heroes Act. Betsy DeVos, as part of the Trump administration, multiple times, you know, like delayed student 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 loan repayment. So, like specifically as an emergency measure, the Secretary of Education during an emergency modified um, the terms of loan repayment. So, so, so the reason I'm the reason we're making that point is because the question here is not whether or not the COVID pandemic warrants a disaster as defined by the heroes act, because Mm. we've already established that it does Mm. Democrat, a democratic administration and a Republican administration have both like have both characterized it as being that. Mm -hmm. And that was never challenged by the Supreme court. The question at hand is whether or not the extent is allowed by law. Yeah. I feel like the best source of information here would probably be, I don't know, maybe, the person who wrote it. Mm, what a novel source. So uh, one of the architects of the HEROES Act, uh, former Democratic Representative George Miller, he actually wrote a brief to the Supreme Court explaining why under his law, 
it was legal. Yeah. He said, quote, that language could hardly be clearer. <laughs> Statutory or regulatory provisions regarding federal student loan programs include the rules or regulations that would ordinarily require borrowers to pay their loan balances. Mm -hmm. By giving officials the authority to waive those requirements in connection with a national emergency, Congress empowered officials to say that those requirements no longer apply, that borrowers no longer need to pay off the debt they owed. Congress. Yeah. Congress. Again, the question at hand here that the, that the court's trying to argue is that Joe Biden bypassed Congress in order to just put in a policy that he agreed with. Mm -hmm. But he used congressional legislation that was clearly worded that the architect of that legislation, the architect of that legislation even concurred that, yes— this is what it f is fucking supposed to do. Yeah. The language could not be clearer. He said, it's not ambiguous. He said, that language could hardly be clearer. Yeah. He it's, said I mean, that. It's so true. Like, it is another, yet another case, like we talked about last week, of the Supreme Court creating rationale to attempt to support a position that they've already reached. They already decided ahead of time that they needed to find some way to block, uh, biden's student loan forgiveness plan again it says waive or modify the laws and regulations governing student loan programs like and then in robert's opinion he recognizes that the word modify means that the mine administration can make adjustments to existing provisions now he he qualifies them as modest adjustments even though that's not in the legislation that's not in the qualify law. the that's amount not in the fucking law he you, just fucking you made makes that it up. up you fucking made that he up. just fucking makes it up yeah and so like that means that you know that they're not allowed to transform them and that um the the student debt relief program would quote create a novel and fundamentally different loan forgiveness program again that sounds like a modification also it says wave yeah. Modification is not doing the work here. And and in response to that, Roberts basically made the point that the Secretary of Education can waive um, certain loan requirements, like the procedures for loan forbearance or something like that, but can't waive the loans themselves. You made that up. That's he not just, what the law says. Exactly. He's just fucking making that shit up. Like, even that, okay, let's modify it to say that... Loans have to be repaid uh, for one day after uh, they become due. And after that point, all remaining loan balance is forgiven. Currently, if you don't pay within 12 years, all remaining loan balance is forgiven. So the idea that you couldn't reduce that to one day is crazy. That would clearly be just an adjustment of, of, of extent, not of like the kind of the law. And that's just, and that's even accepting Robert's point, right? That's even accepting his absolutely bullshit logic and limitations that he's totally just reading into a law that he disagrees with. Yeah. It's like, look, yeah. Look, if the, the, the issue is the only way that they could have possibly ruled against Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Mm hmm would be if they declared that the HEROES Act was unconstitutional. Yes. All right? They claimed that what Biden did was unconstitutional because he bypassed Congress, mm -hmm. meaning he was bypassing the whole power of the purse thing. However, he did it through a law. 
So the only way that Roberts could have declared the act to be unconstitutional is to declare the law to be unconstitutional, Mm -hmm. which he did not do. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's really important to touch on one concept that is really doing all of the work. So once you once you go through his opinion and cut out all the bullshit about made up provisions of the law, ultimately it rests on this made up doctrine that Roberts and uh, Thomas and the conservative wing of the court in general have been, well, really just creating, making up out of whole cloth over the last yeah. couple of terms. And that is the major questions doctrine. And this is an yeah. invention of this court specifically designed to attempt to dismantle administrative agencies. So as we've talked about in the past, administrative agencies, as, as Nathan just described, are agencies that exist endowed by Congress Um, In a piece of legislation, these agencies are created and they can then, you know, uh, go through rulemaking procedures in order to be able to um, have that kind of delegated authority from Congress to govern a specific area of law. And this is important, right? Like if Congress were to write a law that said that like outlaws, you know, assault rifles, for example, it would be pretty fucking easy for a you know, a gun manufacturer to adjust the specifics of what, of what, you know, is defined in that law as an assault rifle, just to barely not meet that criteria where the function of the firearm would be the same. And so they'd be able to, with a letter of the law, just totally make a, like work around uh, Congress's authority. And as a result, Congress would have to pass a whole fucking new law every single time a tiny little thing in the world changed. But, but, um, by endowing agencies with the ability to make rules, they're able to make laws like flexible and reactive and, and have ongoing guidance. And, and this is like a really critical part of governing. It's also a part of governing that the conservative wing of the court is directly taking aim at and has been for the last few years. And the way they're doing this is with the major questions doctrine. And essentially what this, yeah. what this is, is a made up test or fun or like a, a, you know, or heuristic that allows them to say, hey, if an administrative agency's um, power has like, you know, is, is, has important economic implications or is of, you know, significant uh, political interest, right, or might be politically charged, then the, you know, power delegated to that agency or the legislation that created that agency or gives them that power must like very clearly state it. Basically what they're doing is taking the legs out of the administrative agency's ability to write rules and make laws that actually govern stuff. So in this case, just out of nowhere, they just decide that $400 billion is too much money, essentially, for the administrative agency to have control over without an explicit like, um, you know, grant from Congress. Now, as we've already mentioned, they have it. They have that explicit grant of power from Congress. But this is just the ability for the court. Well, let me just put it in Alana Kagan's terms. So Alana Kagan, in her dissent, explained that, that Congress, quote, delegates to agencies often and broadly, and for a variety of reasons, ranging from the expertise of those agencies to their ability to keep up with the changing times and circumstances and the limits on Congress's own ability to address everything that needs to be done. The Supreme Court's reliance on the major questions doctrine overrules Congress's decisions about how and when to delegate. And that is a major problem, not just for governance, but for democracy too. 
And she went on to say that this makes the Supreme Court, quote, the arbiter, indeed the maker of national policy. Yeah. So as garbage as this, as the opinion that was written by John Roberts is, as fucking baseless as, as it is, to make matters worse, <laughs> this fucking court case should never have been heard in the Let's first Let's talk place. about standing, baby. Because, yeah. When it comes to, when it comes to lawsuits... In order for you, for the lawsuit to actually happen, there has to be some level of standing, which means that damages, some type of damages have to be proven. Mm -hmm. So initially, Republicans were, you know, grasping at straws to try to figure out, okay, how can we find somebody who has standing? Because who does this hurt? Because, I mean, it doesn't really hurt anybody. So it's Mm -hmm. really, it was really hard for them to find any standing. First off, they tried to do two lawsuits which uh, which was represented by two individuals who did not qualify for the Biden uh, for the Biden forgiveness program, which even this Supreme Court was just like, you're not going to be benefited from mm-hmm. us striking it down. We yeah. like there's literally fucking nothing. You have nothing. Yeah. Uh, but then there was another lawsuit that was brought by Missouri and five other conservative states and. Kagan pointed to the fact that none of these states would suffer any injury from the Biden student loan forgiveness program because it's the federal government Mm -hmm. that administers the loans, not the states. So they had no damages. But what they tried to argue was that there was this there's this uh, public agency in Missouri called the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, but which they would be hurt by it. Mm -hmm. They would incur some costs. Now, it turns out, because of all of the administrative work they would do in carrying out the forgiveness, they would actually net more money under under the, the law, which is like the extent of which they would be affected by it. But even if, even if that weren't the case, mm-hmm. the agency w- did not consent to being a part of the lawsuit exactly. in the first place. Yeah, the proper, per- the proper party withstanding would be the agency, not the state that the agency's in. Yeah. And instead of just rejecting the court, the, the, the court case, because it had no fucking standing, mm-hmm. they decided to hear it under the major questions doctrine. Yep. Cause they're like, Ooh, sweet. Major questions means that we can just do whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> yeah. It's like, especially, so especially on questions of standing, how does something like a major questions doctrine Create a harm that the Supreme Court has the power to address. Yeah. It doesn't. It can't. All that means is that anytime someone brings a lawsuit that happens to make it, happens to get appealed up to the Supreme Court, they get to say, oh, it doesn't actually matter what the procedure is, what the like, what the harm is, whether there's literally anyone in this case who has been harmed. They just get to yeah. say, oh, this asks a question that we want to answer. And therefore, we just get to write laws about it. It is literally exactly the function of a legislature with different clothes, different dressings. So there's just nine of them instead of 535. Yeah, exactly. And and look, I think it, it's easy for someone to listen to this and think, well, you know, you all just want student loan forgiveness to be enacted. Therefore, you would disagree with the court case no matter what the standing was. And you know what? I don't know. Maybe that's the case. But this is this is stupid fucking standing. That's yeah. That's right? the thing. <laughs> yeah. That's like that's the thing. Even you, you know, know what? Bring that case 
bring a case with good standing. And we can test our intellectual integrity then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this does not test our intellectual integrity no. at all. It is a garbage decision with horrible justification that just makes shit up about a law, a law mm -hmm. that was written by a guy who says, yes, this is the type of thing yeah, that I wrote exactly. the law for. It's this so is, funny. This, the, he says the language could not be clearer. It's so funny because the Supreme Court is used to making like like making up shit about like the founding fathers in order to support their originalist jurisprudence that is also totally made up. Um, yeah. And it, they really get caught in it when the people that wrote the laws that they're talking about are still fucking alive. And they're like, no, yeah. actually, you guys were actually wrong about that. Um, uh, I can actually say it because I'm, I'm here. And they're like, if only we could do it. <laughs> what they knew at the time. It's like, uh, actually, I'm still uh, alive. Uh, Hello? Ew, what is that sound? Dead. Is that a ghost? Oh, <laughs> I feel the legislature is talking to me. <laughs> okay, so now it's back on Biden. Let's talk about yeah. what's going on there. Because ultimately, you know, we still expect Biden to follow through on his campaign promises to relieve student loan uh, debt burdens. So following this decision, they came out with what is essentially an updated repayment plan. So currently, yeah. there are provisions already um, that help alleviate some payment burden for student loan borrowers. Uh, so the current the current plan is the revised pay as you earn repayment plan, and under that plan, there's a bunch of like there's a bunch of details, but the main provision is that you are only required to pay a maximum of ten percent of your discretionary income, monthly income, towards an undergraduate student, uh, like student loans. Um, and so the new plan, the main thing it would do is reduce that ten percent down to a 5% cap. So 5% of your discretionary income is the cap of your monthly uh, repayment. It would also you know, take everyone that's on that previous plan and put them on the new plan with the lower threshold. Um, and it would essentially cap, you know, set the, there are people that can pay $0 under the plan. And basically if your income is at or below $15 an hour of full-time work as an individual taxpayer payer, your repayment would be set to zero essentially. So there is some burden for some relief for like people that are at the really low end of the income of the income spectrum. Yeah. But ultimately it's, it's just a little bit of repayment uh, relief for, you know, lowest income borrowers. So not nearly the, the, you know, broad forgiveness that was, that was his commitment. This better fucking just be an in-the-meantime thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope that Biden is smart enough to realize that there are a lot of people that when that Supreme Court decision came out, they almost just fucking gave up Yeah. on politics. Mm -hmm. Because there are so many people that constantly, all the fucking time, see how corrupt and elitist our government is. The fact that we've passed tax breaks for rich people. We passed the Trump tax cuts where 80% of all benefits uh, are going to go to the top 1% after 10 years. Fucking tax breaks for people who own yachts. Mm. Like the yachts for tax bailing program, out, yeah. bailing out wall street, the same executives that crashed our economy 
and caused the 2008 recession and the subprime mortgage crisis, fucking bailing them out. And you know what? You, you know what? The, the day that this Supreme Court case came through, I, I was just, I wasn't even angry. I mean, I was angry, mm. but I was just depressed for the rest of the day. Mm. I was just like, good things aren't possible. Mm-hmm. Good things are never possible. What's the point? And Biden, you really don't want your base to feel that way. Yeah. Democrats really don't want their base to feel that way. Because if we feel that way, we are not going to show up to vote. Mm-hmm. All right. And I'm, and look, this is me, somebody who I actually do try to be hopeful. Mm-hmm. All right. I, I am constantly fighting against nihilism sure. from my peers. Yeah. Where they come to me and they're like, hey, Nathan, I just, what is the point? You know, tell me something hopeful. Like, I know that you know, like, you follow this stuff. I know that you know what's going on. Give me something. And that day, even I was just kind of like, it's all, it's all meaningless. Mm-hmm. It's all, you know, we're all just fucked no matter what we do. Now, look, I... I know I've probably gone through this before, but I'm just going to go through it again. All right. This, this plan would have meant so much for my family. I am a cancer survivor and so is my wife. I just recently uh, finished paying off medical debt from a, from a CT scan from a year ago. And I, you know, and, and luckily it was a, that, that particular, uh, that particular scan was enough to meet my out of pocket. So the every three months that I have to go to and get CT scans to make sure the cancer hasn't come back, you know, I didn't have to pay for the rest of those because you know the initial one was so goddamn expensive. Sure. My wife is a cancer survivor, and because because of our medical situation, we couldn't have we can't have kids in the in the traditional way which means we had to go through IVF treatments. I've talked about on this pod about how my wife is pregnant right now. We had to go through IVF treatments, which is fucking expensive. Mm -hmm. We had to save money. We had to beg relatives for additional money. In fact, the cost of IVF is about $20,000, which is how much we uh, we would have been saved by the student loan forgiveness plan. Now, I don't have any, any student loan debt, because my parents were wealthy enough to be able to afford to, to cover the cost of my undergraduate degree. But my wife, she wasn't able to. Mm-hmm. She had to get student loans in order to get her degree. She had to get student loans to get her degree in social work, which, by the way, a degree in which she will be dedicating her life to helping the very people that are constantly fucked by the very system that wouldn't even give us this modest fucking degree of relief. And what would have meant so much to my family that has had to deal with so much in the last year is that it was looking like the time the, around the time that we would have our kid, we would have this massive financial relief. Instead, what's going to happen is pretty much right as we're having the kid, Student loan payments are going to kick in, which means that we're going to be, you know, as as little money as that we're already going to have left over because we're going to have to pay a lot more to take care of a kid because it, it's fucking expensive to ta- to raise a kid. We're going to have to pay even more. 
because Republicans wanted to fuck over people like me in order to spite the Democrats. Now, they'll have you believe that, oh, this is a case of the Democrats trying to take money from poor people without a college degree and give them to rich people with college degrees. First off, that's bullshit because this didn't even apply for people that make under, what was it, 125000 Yeah, for a single person, yeah. Doesn't even apply to people that make over that amount. The people that would receive the most benefits from this are the people that are either of a moderate income or a lower income. Those are the people that would benefit from this. Nobody was hurt by it. Those are the people that would benefit from this. Yeah. The reason why they try to use that framing is because they want to turn us against each other. They elites want to turn the people that are middle class or lower class, they want to turn us against each other. And they want to make us nihilistic. And we can't let them do that. As tempting as it is, we cannot let them do that. We need to keep pushing the Democrats to actually fucking do something, to actually fight. We need to make it so that Biden has to exhaust every single avenue to get us student loan forgiveness. And we need to make it clear to him that if he doesn't do that, he won't be able to depend on us. They need us more than we need them. And we need to remind them of that. That's why I'm still hopeful. Because that is the truth. They need us more than we need them. And if enough voices scream loud enough, they cannot be drowned out by all the money in the world. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment. A good actually. So Nathan, what's a good actually? Well, Michael, as was probably evident from uh, the tone at the end of our last segment, the world fucking sucks sometimes. Yeah, it does. And it's really easy for people to become nihilistic because of that. Too easy. It's really easy for people to, to look at the world and just decide better things are not possible, and we might as well just let the elites win because they're too insurmountable. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes, if you look around you and you look really hard, mm-hmm. you'll see that Sometimes things can work out. Sometimes thing, better things are possible. Positive change can happen. And good actually is all around us. Wow. That's amazing. That's almost as heartwarming as how you ended our last segment. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nathan, I really honestly don't believe you. Yeah. I just don't believe that there's good out there. So you really? have to prove it to me. What yeah. could possibly be good in a time so dark well i'd like to turn your attention to michigan also dark now no one of the things that we've <laughs> been s- <laughs> one of the things that we uh we often see in uh midwestern states midwestern purple states is that they can do a lot more with a one-seat majority or a two-seat majority or barely a majority than a lot of blue states can do with like a, a super majority. And Michigan mm. is definitely one of those cases. They recently passed a law. It was, a, it was an education bill providing free lunches for every public school student. And it is now one of seven states that has offered this benefit. That is awesome. That is awesome. That is freaking great. I, I know that this is a bold stance, but on this show, we are unapologetically pro-food for children. 
whoa, <laughs> you liberal. <laughs> Call yeah, me definitely... a bleeding heart liberal, but I think it's better for children to have food than to not have food. Wow. Bold stance. Yeah. We are definitely pro-feeding kids on this show, and we've done segments about uh, school lunch, and we've done segments about um, like the benefits of not being hungry to school performance and overall life performance and the importance of uh, meals at school, nutritious meals at school, as an enabler of stability and nutrition even outside of school, uh, especially for those children that are you know, you know, not sufficiently wealthy to eat outside of school. So free school lunch is a huge accomplishment and an unapologetically good thing. Man, you've convinced me, Nathan. Feeding babies really is actually a good thing. Yeah, yeah. And again, I just want to reiterate, good things are possible. Good things can happen, all right? If your governments have enough pressure from their uh, the people that elect them, they will do good things. You know, you can't just elect them and expect them to be good because, you know, I'd just like to point out the other seven, the, the, the other uh, six states on the list, California, Colorado, Minnesota, Maine, New Mexico, Vermont, great on them. But why isn't New York on that list? Mm-hmm. Democrats have a supermajority there. <laughs> why isn't Washington? Why isn't Oregon? Why isn't Illinois? Yeah. Why isn't okay. Illinois on that list? Mm-hmm. All right. There are lots of blue states that should be on that list that are not on blue, that, that, are, that are not on that list. So, good actually is all around us. Let's spread the good. For our next segment, we are diving into nuclear energy and its potential role in uh, the climate transition, or basically uh, in the satisfaction of our our energy demands um, as we move from fossil fuels uh, towards clean energy including renewables. Before we start, I'd just like to point something out. This is a fucking complicated issue. It's almost as if an (laughs) issue totally tied up with, like, physics and, (laughs) like, (laughs) fucking... Yeah, this is, like, a really fucking complicated issue, for sure. And the the reason why I say that is because I, you know... You don't you don't hear me make this qualifier very often, so you know enjoy it. But the reason I say that is because I really do think that there are really great arguments on both sides of yes. it, and I think that any progressive that dismisses someone who is like pro nuclear energy mm-hmm. as just being a you know corporate stooge that doesn't care about the environment is just, that is a extremely simplistic view of it. Absolutely. And, and any conservative that dismisses the concerns of progressives over potential, uh, the potential drawbacks of nuclear energy mm-hmm. are also being overly simplistic. Yes. Because there, there are very legitimate concerns and there are very legitimate benefits. Yeah. And I don't think that whether you are pro or anti-nuclear energy has a bearing... Mm-hmm. on your progressive or conservative or whatever credentials. Yeah. And it shouldn't. This should be a conversation about the science of it. Yeah. The benefits of it 
and the ability to implement it. Yes. This should not, I don't think this should be a partisan battle. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think it should be a battle. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it should be a partisan battle because there's definitely, there's definitely a lot to say about it. Yeah. So I just, I just want to throw that out there. You know, I think progressives that are against it are not like bleeding heart dumbasses. Mm-hmm. I don't think that progressives who are for it or conservatives who are for it or anybody who's for it is just, just doesn't care about the environment. Yeah. And I think the, the importance of this segment was one, we wanted to learn about it. We wanted yeah. to, cause you know, we weren't sure about what, what our mind, what our position should be on the show. But two, yeah. like this is an intensely factual question. It's an intensely yeah. factual inquiry there's really no principle of the matter at play here which means there's not really a uh black and white uh you know conclusion it's it's a matter of judgment and which side of the pro or against line you might fall on is a matter of judgment and there's good arguments uh to be made for and against it ultimately like setting the stage for a conversation about nuclear energy requires that we recognize the incredibly shitty position that we're in. Yeah. I think that's a really important place to start. The fact that in 2019, worldwide energy production was 26,000 terawatt hours of energy and that it is expected to triple by 2050. And the fact that today, fossil fuels provide 80%, approximately 80%, plus or minus in a given year, of the world's energy with renewables accounting for approximately 10% and nuclear power account- accounting for the remaining 10% or so. We're, we're in a fucking shitty position. And there are intensely factual questions about our ability to reach, to avoid climate catastrophe in um, the coming years. As we transition basically 80% of our energy supply to like carbon neutral sources. And so like one, it's, we should be, we should recognize that we are in a nearly impossible position and we need all the help we can get. Yeah. And so questions about how to get that 80% down to zero are questions about what are the most efficient paths are there caps? Are there limits on how much solar or wind or hydroelectric power we can feasibly implement? Is There are questions about how do we budget the right amount of money to put behind different efforts to try to get us to that point? And so ultimately, like, even if at the end of this segment we conclude that nuclear energy has a role to play, it's a role. Yeah. Um, it, it's... It's not I mean, the role. It is not the solution. There's almost, yeah. and we can talk through why, but it's pretty clear that nuclear energy is not going to replace fossil fuels as that 80%. But yeah, it it might you know, play an important role in getting us to a carbon neutral destination. Yeah. So with that in mind, let's go over the pros and cons of it, try to understand it, and see what our judgments are. Mm-hmm. This is this is another uh, se- uh, segment where Michael and I have not revealed our opinions to each other, our conclusions to each other. So you're going to you're going to hear us work through that in real time. Perfect. So to start out, let's talk about some of the 
pros of nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. All right. First off, it's important to understand that nuclear energy is carbon free. Yes. It does not produce carbon emissions. There are concerns in terms of waste. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's completely environmentally friendly. Sure. But in terms of in terms of carbon emissions, in terms of contributions to climate change, it is not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? It's not and carbon, we'll talk yeah. we'll talk more about the potential environmental impacts a little bit later though. Mm-hmm. Um another really crazy advantage to it is efficiency. Yes, yes. It is massively, massively efficient yeah. in terms of how much land it takes up, how much power it outputs. Let me put this into perspective. So this this comes from uh, energysage.com. Let's look at a at a nuclear facility producing uh, 1,000 megawatts of electricity. So that would take approximately one square mile of space. All right? Compare that to a wind farm producing the same amount of energy, which would take up 380 times more land area. Yeah. And if we're talking about a solar farm, 75 times more space. That is 431 wind turbines or 3.125 million solar panels. Yeah. All right? And for a nuclear facility, that's one square mile of space mm-hmm. for the same energy. Yeah. It, yeah. That's pretty damn impressive. That is super impressive. And another thing that's that's kind of a double-edged sword with nuclear energy but provides key benefits is that it's run on fuel. Ultimately, like, you know, your typically uranium fuel that's used means that you're not dependent on external factors to be able to run your power continuously. So as, as you know, people, uh, you know, uh, Republicans like to bring up all the time, wind power works when the wind is blowing and solar power works when the sun is shining. Um, and so that means that, uh, uh, you know, approximately 37% of the time wind is generating power and approximately 26% of the time solar is generating power at, f- at full capacity. Whereas yeah. nuclear reactors, which are, you know, run on fuel, are online and generating power approximately 93% of the time. Which means that in a destination, you know, energy uh, ecosystem where our expectation, assuming our expectation is continuously available power, um, we, like nuclear reactors may play an important role. It's either, you know, it's basically that or hydroelectric power or, you know, other ways of storing energy like batteries or biofuel or things like that. So... Ultimately, like the consistency of nuclear power is one of its key advantages as well. Yeah. On top of that, waste, which we'll talk about in a bit, mm-hmm. is recyclable. Yes. In fact, uh, nuclear waste still has more than 90% of its potential energy. More than 90%. Mm-hmm. Now, currently, there are, not, uh, there are not programs in the United States to recycle nuclear mm-hmm. fuel. But France does. Yeah. So usually what we do is we we store that energy. Now, you might think, well, holy shit, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> you're storing that? You're you're storing nuclear radioactive bombs. material? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. how much of how much of that shit gets created? Well, this was actually a fact that really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Which is that 
there is a there is very little nuclear waste in comparison to like in, in proportion to how much energy it produces mm-hmm. in fact if we combined all of the um all of the amount of spent fuel since the 1950s, which is about 90 metric tons, which sounds like a lot, but if it were all able to be stacked together, it would fit on a single football field with a depth of less than 10 yards. Yeah. That is all of the waste produced since the 1950s. Yeah. That's really not that bad. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, you know, we're talking about a minority of our energy production, but even comparing yeah, 20%. to, yeah, but, but like that, you know, 90,000 tons compared even to renewable sources, according to the international renewable energy agency, the United States will have approximately 170,000 to 1 million tons of waste from solar panels by 2030. So way less waste in terms of volume, at least, um, than even other clean sources of energy. One one fact yeah. that I thought was kind of crazy was, on average, the waste from a nuclear reactor, which supplies you know a single person their ne- energy needs for a year, will uh, be about the size of a brick. With the high levels of waste, so the actual fuel, like spent fuel, uh, being only five grams, which is about the weight of a sheet of paper. That's enough yeah. waste. <laughs> That's the waste generated to supply a person with their energy needs for a year. And yeah. And ultimately like like energy production is our answer essentially to all of our like power needs in the future, right? We're we're moving towards electrification of cars and so many other things. Now that electricity has to be created somewhere. And so ultimately it's yeah. a ton of pressure on the grid, which makes sense, right? If you scale up energy production, you actually increase efficiency for each unit of energy. A while a gas engine is pretty efficient, a huge gas engine is more efficient, and a huge nuclear yeah. reactor is more efficient. Um, but ultimately, like the fact that you can supply someone's all their energy needs for a year with one sheet of paper's worth of highly radioactive material, which to Nathan's point, it is at least possible to then recycle and reprocess, and then in certain facilities potentially reuse that fuel for additional energy. Um, that seems like a, you know, at least potential upside. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the potential downsides. Yeah. Because there are downsides. And there was even one that it it took me a little bit of digging to find, mm-hmm. but it is something that gave me pause. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll kind of work through it. So first off, I think the obvious one is that uranium is technically non-renewable. Now I told you that like the waste can be can be renewed, but technically uranium itself, there is a limited amount of uranium on the surface of the earth. It's something that can eventually be used up. Yeah. <laughs> and um <laughs> and if we've learned anything from oil, it's that <laughs> if it can be used up, it will be used up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, according to the World Nuclear Association, uh, the world's uh, present measured resources of uranium in the cost category, um, less than three times present uh, spot and prices used only in conventional reactors, are enough to last about 90 years. Now, that's, you know, 90 years is a long time. Hmm. 
Kind of. But it's not a very long time in the in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Like it sounds like a long time, but it's on on average ten years to build a plant. Yeah. So will they find more efficient ways of of using uranium so it lasts longer? Will recycling it make it last longer? I honestly don't know. Like I I I am not an expert on uranium, to be clear. I am not a scientist. Mm -hmm. Uh I don't even play one on TV. But I, 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 I think it, it should be noted that uranium will eventually run out. Mm-hmm. And as we know from oil, oftentimes when a resource is starting to run low, people like companies will find various different methods to extract more. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the more desperate they are, the less, uh, the less careful they're going to be. And oftentimes at the expense of people around them. Yeah. But we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Another another um, you know, important weakness is that like on the waste part, you know, yes, there's like physically much less waste than other kinds of energy production. Um, but at the same time, generally speaking, like the kinds of waste output from nuclear energy can be more highly toxic than you know waste from other places so ultimately even though it's a smaller amount we still need to like do something with it so recycling is one option but we can't perfectly recycle it there's always going to be a piece you know a little bit left over that's dangerously radioactive and ultimately our best answer on that is essentially to dig a big hole and put it in the ground yeah um and like ultimately we have developed safe ways to do that that at least according to like our you know engineers and our current science like enable us to trap that radioactive waste for at least long enough to be, for it to become essentially inert and no longer pose a hazard um but it is worth noting that this is a an activity that requires really careful handling of the waste in order to um you know prevent people from getting sick and ultimately Corporations don't give us a lot of confidence that they're going to <laughs> really stick to the safe, the critical safety standards that are required for them to for their activities to remain as safe as possible. Yeah, and that's that's another thing that should also give you pause. Mm-hmm. Malfunctions, yes, in yeah. a nuclear plant can be fucking devastating. Yeah, for sure. They don't happen often, but they happen, and when they do, it is devastating. Yeah. Now. When I'm looking at this, like th- this was this was the big thing that I always learned growing up mm-hmm. was the problem with nuclear energy. And I guess what I was wonder- wondering when going into this is, is this kind of a case like with the Hindenburg mm-hmm. where it's not necessarily that the thing itself is less safe than other things. It's because the disasters gave it such bad PR that Mm -hmm. people don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Yeah. And what I would say is that it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. Because the issue is that nuclear reactors, in order to produce the safety levels that they're going to need to prevent those types of disasters, there is a very high upfront cost. Yes. And as we know... From uh, from various different cases and various different disasters related to energy production, such as, you know, the Alaskan oil spill mm-hmm. or the Gulf oil spill, energy companies love to cut corners in order to save costs. Yeah. 
And this is one of those, this is going to be one of those energies where there is going to be a financial incentive to cut corners. Mm -hmm. And if those corners are cut, you know, if you thought that the, the Gulf oil spill was bad, I mean, take a look at Chernobyl. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I think, I mean, yeah, Chernobyl is a particularly powerful example just because it was so disastrous and we continue to yeah. see the influence of or, and the effect of that fallout um, even to this day. It's a little bit of a tough example because we're talking about Soviet Russia in a particularly yeah. dysfunctional time in the 1980s. Um, their reactor lacked safety features uh, that were typical in other reactors at the time. Um, and yeah. and so ultimately, like this was a very mismanaged situation. But I guess the point you're making is ultimately that's my that, point. Yes, exactly. Mismanagement <laughs> <That's my point. laughs> is the problem and is the yeah. enemy here. And ultimately, and, be, I, yeah, and high kept, upfront costs incentivize that exactly. And I kept seeing people talking about how few people died from these different disasters, like Chernobyl. I think it was 43 confirmed deaths, which is pretty low. From Three Mile Island in Fukushima, there's no recorded deaths um, at all, and Three Mile Island was the U.S.'s worst uh nuclear accident and actual radiation exposure for the two million people living closest to the reactor amounted to less than like a dental x-ray at least according to some of the things that, the findings that i was i was reading through and so like i think it is probably overblown like it, the toll on like human life that some of these disasters might have except you know, we continue to have fallout in around Chernobyl for like, like ecologically as a result of the disaster. So like, even if we're able to save human lives, like it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no environmental impact here. Yes. And another thing that we need to talk about is the mining itself. Yes. The potential devastating effects of the mining. And this right here is the mm -hmm. one that I think gave me the most pause, which is, which yep. is interesting because this, on a lot of websites that I went to that were talking about the pros and cons of uh, nuclear energy, this yep. was not discussed. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this should have been discussed because to me, this is the most important one. This was the mm -hmm. most harmful one. And that is the fact that um, there have been cases in which communities near nuclear mines were devastated by the radiation created by the mining of uranium. Interesting. So so basically, there was a practice which is not done anymore, or at least it's not supposed to be done anymore, in which when you mine up the uranium ore, you put it down outside of the mine. Like you stack it up outside of the mine. Mm -hmm. And what would happen was the wind would blow dust from the, the, radiate, from the uh, uranium rocks, the uranium ore, and it would get into the water supply. Mm. It would go into the air for the community. And there was a particularly egregious case uh, where there was a, a 17 million acre Navajo reservation that was devastated by this. Jesus. That was completely devastated by this to the point where there was a testimony by the president of the Navajo Nation in which... He he pointed out that at this point, cancer, this was and this testimony was in 2019. Cancer was the second leading cause of death for Navajos 
living on or alongside the reservation. And quote, prior to uranium mining, Navajo people were virtually cancer free with the lowest lung cancer rate of all Native American nations. Hmm. And it went from that to being the second leading cause of death. Hmm. Now, today, a lot of those uranium mines are closed uranium mines. Mm -hmm. But the disasters that were created by them when they were in operation, and even to some extent after they've closed down, has skyrocketed cancer rates in these communities. Yeah. Now, this goes back to kind of what we were discussing before, which is the fact that with regulations, this could have been prevented. Mm -hmm. But the problem is... Energy industries have repeatedly shown over and over again that they will cut corners in order to save costs. Yeah. In order to in order to save money. Mm-hmm. So my concern about nuclear energy at this point is the fact that number 1 because it is a non-renewable energy there will be you know, like we've seen with with uh, with fossil fuels, there will be practices such as, you know, the case of fracking in which they will try to extract more of the resource mm-hmm. and not necessarily care about the potential environmental disasters that it causes or ecological yeah. issues that it causes, com- that, it, that it creates for communities. Yeah, as they get more desperate. As you get more desperate, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think... One one other related thing to that is like, I think a lot of the advocacy in favor of nuclear energy really focuses on the cleanliness and the efficaciousness and the efficiency of the nuclear power plant operations and power generation in general. But to your point about the mining operation is that, you know, that's where all the radiation is, right? Like, like in, in actual nuclear power plants, the... Background radiation with, you know, even within like a pretty near radius of the plant is like pretty much the same as background radiation. It's like a normal amount of exposure. So not elevated radiation near the power plant, which is like a huge win for nuclear advocates. But to your point about mining, like, you know, definitely a potential for exposure around the mines. And maybe that's solved with regulation, but maybe the corners are cut. At the same time, like operating a nuclear power plant is carbon neutral, but the construction of that plant and the mining of the ore uh, does create carbon, at least for now, as like most of our (laughs) methods for doing that kind of thing, use fossil fuels and do generate carbon. So according to the public citizen um, and a page they put together on this, a nuclear power plant takes approximately 10 to 18 years to overcome the... Um, carbon that it's like to produce enough energy to overcome the carbon that was generated as a result of the construction and the mining related to the plant. So ultimately, like, even if we were to build a ton of nuclear power plants right now, they would not like contribute to our carbon neutrality for another 10 to 18 years, or at least we dig a big hole in terms of creating a bunch of carbon as we build these plants that we then have to climb out of over the next decade or two. Which means yeah. that, like, we might be digging ourselves even, you know, making ourselves even more of a significant climate problem as we work to fix the climate problem. Um, so, to me, that was a big Achilles' heel for um, so, nuclear power 
as an option. So true, but that's often the case with other renewable oh, energies totally. as well. Yeah, so yeah, I, totally. I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a disadvantage of nuclear energy over other energies. And I think, you know, the, yeah. the reason why that happens is because the... Uh, the power for the equipment usually sure. comes from fossil fuels. Yeah. But if we're if we're revitalizing our energy grid so it's no longer coming from that, yep. then you know it's it's not really a problem anymore. So I yeah, it's a problem that I, solves itself as you continue to solve the problem. Exactly. It gets less exactly. So it's definitely something worth considering. It's yep. definitely something that you got to think about that you got to you got to recognize. But I think it mm -hmm. is it is a hold that will very gradually fill itself as yeah. as we as we move closer to that as a solution so 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 the other thing is like i think a lot of people have been celebrating nuclear energy as a potential like solution to climate change and i think one of the big challenges here is our time frame that we're working under i mean that's the big challenge with with solving the climate crisis in general um but nuclear energy has particularly long development times and build times, specifically because it takes so much work and so much care to be able to build a nuclear facility that is safe and accounts for all the risks involved. So according to uh, McKinsey, who's a, a management consulting firm, they did an analysis to look at um, how much uh, new nuclear energy would be needed to keep up with energy demand. Um, and basically they found that we would require uh, an additional 400 to 800 gigawatts of new nuclear uh, power generation uh, to keep us at that 10% or to move to 20% of global electricity demand satisfied by nuclear energy. And we'd have to do this by 2050. And that would require that we basically, we build another 50 gigawatts per year of new nuclear energy uh, as we approach 2050. The problem is at its peak, nuclear energy production only ever reached 30 gigawatts per year. And since 2000, globally, the most we've ever produced is 11 gigawatts per year, which means that this would take a huge amount of increased investment and capacity to be able to even um, start on this project. The other thing is, it's quite expensive to actually create. And so you have to have trade-off conversations between investing in nuclear versus investing in re renewables, where, um, like, generally speaking, creating power with nuclear is at least twice to three times more expensive than it is to create power with renewables, uh, accounting for those, uh, the build costs as well. And so, like, ultimately, like, if you have a dollar and you're not sure where to spend it, um, yeah, it's, like, a little bit harder to put it towards renewables. And finally... The other thing that makes it makes me skeptical of this as like the ultimate kind of solution here is that it takes approximately 10 years or so in order to actually build a nuclear power plant. So even if we started right now and hit, you know, our capacity or like the most, you know, our capacity needs, right? If we hit the most capacity ever produced, we still wouldn't be able to get to a point where we were even increasing the portion of energy produced by nuclear power. So like the our ability to even follow through on nuclear remaining 10% of global energy demand is highly in doubt, much less being able to increase that to be, you know, the solution to to fossil fuels. Yeah. So let's talk about our final judgments. Yeah. Um Michael, why don't why don't you go first? I'll go first. Ultimately, I think um 
I think nuclear energy is worth investing in. I think it's worth um, putting money behind. I would like to see more research as well. I think like looking into you know how to safely reduce nuclear reactor size to make them more efficient. And I'd like to see more investment in nuclear fusion, not just fission, uh, even though that's been like a pretty challenging thing to to make progress on. Like ultimately, like I think it's a good option. As far as nuclear goes today, like I think that it pretty much has to be, experts basically have concluded that it pretty much has to be one of the components of energy production um, in the future if we ever want to move fully away from fossil fuels. Um, but I really don't think it's in any way a silver bullet, and it's got to be done really, really carefully and really thoughtfully. Um, and I think it has to be done in a bipartisan way because it's going to take a lot of proactive, thoughtful, um, and and powerful regulation in order for it to actually work. That's very close to what I was... <laughs> Damn what it. I, what, what, yeah, no, no, you're good. You're good. So, so, so yeah, here, what I would say is I, I definitely... I agree with Michael that I'm... Um, that it's definitely something that is worth investing in. I think that it is not the silver bullet, like Michael said. Um, I think that it is something that can help alleviate climate change, and it can definitely be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. And I guess kind of the more nuanced take that I would say, the the, the nuanced take that I think that I, that I have on this, which was very much reflected in what Michael said, is that the biggest concerns that I'm seeing about nuclear energy is when it is not properly regulated. Mm -hmm. It's when corners are cut. It's when the methods of mining are not overseen. And with that in mind, I want the people that are writing policy in the extraction of nuclear energy and the production of nuclear energy to not just be Republicans <laughs> because Republicans love to cut corners. They love to keep regulation out of their legislation. So what I would argue is I think that more Democrats need to be involved in nuclear energy, in mm. trying to, in, in trying to figure out how we are going to regulate nuclear energy. I mm -hmm. think that it is a mistake for the Democratic Party to just be all out, I'm against nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. Because if you're just all out, I'm against nuclear energy, that means that you won't be involved in the policies being written for nuclear energy. Mm -hmm. And if you're not involved in the policies being written for nuclear energy, Republicans are going to do it. And they're going to, they're going to allow corporations to cut corners. Now, and I have some worries that Democrats might do that to an extent as well if they're bought off by, like, you know, executives. But I trust Democrats a lot more than I trust Republicans. Yeah. So I think that this is an issue that doesn't need to be a partisan issue. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that it makes sense for us to try to come together and to discuss, discuss potential solutions, discuss potential avenues. And I think just blanketly being against it is a mistake for progressives. That being said, I do understand the concerns that you have, and I and if if Republicans are the only one writing the legislation, that could be a recipe for disaster. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment. 
a miscellaneous what the fuck. So Nathan, what's a miscellaneous what the fuck? Well, Michael, we do our segments on asshats, and we do segments on Dershowitz bags, because we like to call out people for being asses, and we like to call out people for making stupid arguments. Mm -hmm. But sometimes a story comes our way that just doesn't really fit the mold, but is still hilarious enough that we just we just need to talk about it we just need to point at it and laugh at it and share it with our with our listeners great man okay so who's not an asshole and not making a bad argument and what could they possibly have done to miscellaneously what the fuck well, I do just want to be clear that sometimes a miscellaneous what the fuck is both an asshole, you know, both an and asshole, a <laughs> and, yeah, both an asshole and someone who makes a stupid argument. Fair enough. Um, so, Michael, you know how it is when, like, you know, you're talking to somebody and they just casually bring up genocide and you just unattentively agree with them. Well, that's not um, an experience I've I've had, Nathan. But <laughs> if you've had that experience, I I don't want to make you feel bad. I mean, it's not a regular occurrence. <laughs> I should, I should hope not. <laughs> Wait, so, what the uh, fuck? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. So, um, there was a there was a there was a guest host named uh, Matthew Alvarez on the Right Side Broadcast Network. Which, by the way, for a right wing network, that's a good name. Mm-hmm. Right Side Broadcast Network, like that's, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's a nice pun. Like solid job, solid mm-hmm. job, folks. Um, so he was at a he was at a Trump rally and he was interviewing some uh, some Trump supporters. You know, and he was talking to one of them, and the the Trump supporter said, "I'm here to guarantee Trump gets back in and gets the corruption out of the White House. It's a disgrace. Joe Biden is a disgrace to the country." And Alvarez added, uh, "He's a disgrace. Uh, so are the left and the rhinos and the globalists." And in response, the man shouted. They can kill them all. Kill them all. Which Alvarez responded by saying, I agree with you on that. Now, Nathan, Whoops. when someone shouts at you, <laughs> do you generally hear what they're saying? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Because, like, okay, I, I, I want to, to give him the benefit of the doubt. We can hear it clearly because mm-hmm. the guy's speaking into the microphone. Uh-huh. I don't know if if Alvarez has an earpiece in his head, mm-hmm. you know. So maybe he maybe he didn't hear it. Okay. Like I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he didn't hear it, you know. And if it were just a case of like he didn't hear it and he came out and said, "Hey, look, you know, I I agreed to that, and I just want to be clear. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't hear him. It was a stupid thing to say. I apologize for that. I'm anti-genocide. Mm-hmm. Like, and that if he had just done that, and that was it, I would we wouldn't even be talking about this. Something tells me that wasn't it. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Because look, so so he did come back after he realized that Twitter had kind of gone, you know, had had, had blown up saying, dude, did you just advocate for genocide? You might want to fucking clarify that. Um, he did come out and clarify it. And he said, uh, now there's something trending on Twitter right now. Outside, we were interviewing a number of people who were talking about how great this country is, you know, typically... How, yeah. how, and, and how there are people in it that need to be genocided. Um, how great the president is. And I heard something else that was spoken. It is not something I agree with. Obviously, if there is something that happened or someone was speaking out there, I didn't hear those words spoken. And if that's where he left it, that would have been fine. But then 
one of his co-hosts, a guy named Brian Glenn, came in to try to speak for him. And he said, quote, this is what many on the left do. They'll take a clip of that and they'll run with it. And all of a sudden, the statement is that you want to kill everybody or whatever. We all know that's not what you meant to get across. And then this he, is he, leftist propaganda because they took what I said <laughs> in context and then asked me if I meant it. Those leftist radicals. <laughs> <laughs> like, and and that's the thing here. Like, if they had just if they had just left it at I didn't hear it. I apologize. I don't mm-hmm. believe that. That would have been yeah. fine. But yep. then they they basically used it as an excuse to attack the left. Because the left heard a dude advocating for genocide, Mm -hmm. heard a dude agree with the dude advocating for genocide, and quite reasonably were like, uh, dude, the fuck? (laughs) Like, they're pretending like it's part of some leftist conspiracy to, to, like, put words in his mouth. They didn't put words in your mouth. You said the words... And we needed some clarification. Don't for, don't pretend this is some leftist conspiracy or some media conspiracy. You said it. You said it. <laughs> yeah. Take some responsibility. Mm-hmm. Take some personal responsibility for what you said. Like, and, and that right there is is the only is why we're talking about this. Just the yeah. fact that his co-host and him after this just tried to, like, tried to use the desire to clarify a position on genocide as an excuse to attack the left, which mm-hmm. just shows how fundamentally dishonest these people are. You know, if you're true. like, I, again, I would be giving you the benefit of the doubt if it were just a case of like, ah, you know, I misheard him, you know, or maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you were zoning out for a second. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes people zone out when they're talking and yeah. you agree with something like I, 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 I've been in a situation where I didn't agree with genocide, but you know, someone someone was talking to me, and you know, they stopped talking. And I was like, "Yeah, I know what you mean," and I totally didn't know what they meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like that's that that's happened. It's that human. happens that to happens. a lot of people. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But like, if that were to happen, and someone were like, uh, "Dude, I I just advocated sure? for genocide," yeah, I'd immediately be like, "Oh, wait, no, never mind. <laughs> no, did not mean to say that. I'm an My idiot. Bad. I'm an idiot." Yeah. And yep. anybody who, who heard me say that deserves an explanation, and they're not unreasonable for asking for an explanation. <laughs> you projecting. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations to whatever the fuck that guy's name is. Matthew Alvarez. This week's miscellaneous What the Fuck. Yep. And now we'll end our show as we usually do with our highlights. So Nathan, what's our highlight this week? My highlight this week is actually a preemptive highlight. I, I don't know when this is going to be airing, but we actually recorded this earlier in the week Ooh. because I'm going to be taking a family vacation with uh, my, my parents, my brother, his girlfriend, and my wife uh, to the river. And we're all going to hang out for, for a few days nice. and uh, do river activities and have fun. And I'm really looking forward to that. Sweet. That sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah what about you, Mike? What's your highlight? Um, I don't really know. My highlight. Hmm. This past weekend was really nice. It was super chill. I got to rest up. Things are getting a little bit back to normal. They were kind of hectic there for a bit. But, you know, this week has been somewhat quiet, and that's been kind of nice. And, and honestly, like, I needed the break. So, uh, yeah, it's been a pretty nice week so far. Nice, dude. Yeah. And now we'll thank all the amazing people that make this show possible. 
So thank you to our patrons, Kyle Chaska, Fade Out Scoop, Taylor Bloom, Tobias Janssen, and Jerry DeViller. And thank you to our incredible editor, Kayla, for all they do to make this show possible. And thank you, dear listener, for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again. Mm-hmm.